I want you to hit me as hard as you can. A long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away, George Lucas was known for something other than building, ruining, and then selling one of the most beloved franchises in cinema history. That's right. Before intergalactic warfare, there were drag races. Before the Imperial March, there was rock around the clock. And before Star Wars' $10 billion worldwide haul, there was the box office trendsetter American Graffiti. And while this 1973 classic proved a critical and commercial champion, it wasn't without its own issues under the hood. Drop a dime in the jukebox and fill up the tank to find out what the f happened to this movie. Don't be so weird. That was the most direct, friendly advice filmmaker Francis Ford Coppola was willing to give George Lucas after the release of THX 1138. Considering the film is a dystopian sci-fi story in which all inhabitants' emotions and sexual urges are stripped and controlled by android cops, and that it was adapted from Lucas's own short with the oddball title Electronic Labyrinth THX 1138-4EB, Coppola, who even produced THX, might have had a point. George Lucas was a bit of a weirdo. Coppola's challenge to his buddy, who he met on the set of 1968 musical Finian's Rainbow, was essentially to make a motion picture that would appeal to a wider audience. He told Lucas, who he considered a warm and funny guy, to make a warm and funny movie. Lucas's mind went to cars and babes. Lucas thought of the summer of 1962, the same year he graduated high school. It was a time of cruising in hot rods, picking up chicks on the strip, and devouring burgers at the drive-in. Growing up in Modesto, California, Lucas did it all in his car of choice, an Autobianca Bianchina, which visually isn't all that removed from something Mr. Bean would be seen in. It was in this car that Lucas flipped over after a collision, nearly ending his life and becoming one of the 50s dead man curb bops popular at the time. Still, the passion remained, and he decided his next picture would call back to those days, the so-called simpler times of pre-Vietnam, pre-Kennedy assassination America. Lucas envisioned it as a coming-of-age picture, taking place over the course of one night, set to the soundtracks of pre-British invasion hits. The semi-autobiographical story would feature various characters representing different aspects of Lucas's personality, including his college days and love of muscle cars. He would call it another quiet night in Modesto. Thanks for watching Joe Blow Videos. If you enjoy our shows, please like and subscribe, and click the bell to be notified when new videos go live. Now, back to the show. But there was one immediate snag in this autobiography. George Lucas did not want to write it. To help sell the idea, Lucas hired Willard Hike and Gloria Katz, who would later be instrumental, if largely uncredited, in shaping Star Wars, and would also write Temple of Doom the following decade. Not to mention, uh, I guess we'll mention it, Howard the Duck for George Lucas in 1986. Partnering in the selling was producer Gary Kurtz, who, oddly enough, shares a surname with Apocalypse Now's rogue colonel, played by Marlon Brando. What's so strange about that, you ask? Here's a little tidbit that doubles as one of the most horrifying what-ifs in Hollywood history. George Lucas was originally set to direct Apocalypse Now. Come on, Obi-Wan don't surf? Kurtz and Lucas took the idea around Hollywood to various studios, with the former noting, quote, we wanted to make a nice, simple piece of good Hollywood entertainment. Still, it was a tough sell, which may have something to do with the jaded, realistic approach of the new Hollywood. Lucas, however, 
was getting attention through other avenues. THX 1138 may not have been the box office juggernaut Lucas was hoping for, but it did play at the 1971 Cannes Film Festival and still garnered interest from Hollywood Honcho, who offered him musicals like The Who's Tommy and Hippie Love Fest Hair. Eventually, United Artists lent $10,000 in go-ahead money for Another Quiet Night in Modesto, which Lucas passed on to fellow USC alum Richard Walter, as Hike and Katz were then too busy. In the summer of 1971, Lucas returned from a trip to Europe to find Walter had twisted the story enough that the script now read like a 60s exploitation flick. Lucas's reaction was, quote, It was overtly sexual and very fantasy-like, with playing chicken and things that kids really don't do. Walter was soon canned. This left Lucas alone to write the script, exactly what he didn't want to happen, and he banged it out in just three weeks. Granted, they were 12-hour writing days. Another major inspiration for the script came in the music, which Lucas wrote and set most scenes to. Unfortunately, United Artists didn't find the idea of licensing 70-plus jukebox hits feasible, and so the studio backed out entirely. They also stepped away from Lucas's proposed space opera. Sounds like a piece of junk to us. What a piece of junk! And so Lucas took his script and again sat down with the then-free Hike and Cats, revamping the screenplay to pitch across town. That, too, was rejected by numerous studios, including some of the Big Five, as well as American International Pictures, known for their horror movies and George Corman exploits. Perhaps they would have found Richard Walter's script more to their liking. But one top studio did have an interest, Universal, specifically from its vice president, Ned Tannen. The wheelings and dealings gave Lucas final cut and almost unprecedented contractual stipulation for a sophomore director. But they still needed a headline name to help sell the movie. Re-enter Francis Ford Coppola, who signed on as producer and helped the budget get boosted nearly 25%, putting it to a still modest 775k, 10% of which would go to the music alone. Universal also nabbed a first look deal with Lucas for his next two pictures. But Universal did not like the title of the movie, which had then been changed to American Graffiti. They came up with a list of 60 alternate titles, including Rock Around the Clock, which had already been used for a Bill Haley and the Comets vehicle, the, oh shucks, 1962 was some year, and Burger City, which we believe is the exit before Flavortown. These, objectively, were all terrible, and so Universal ended up back on American Graffiti. Finally greenlit by Universal, American Graffiti could begin the casting process. As the movie was an extensive ensemble piece, Lucas and casting director Fred Roos, one of the unsung heroes in The Godfather's success, embarked on the staggering task of interviewing between 100 and 150 people per day, scouring high schools in and around the San Francisco area to find the perfect composites. Richard Dreyfus, who plays Kurt Henderson, alone edged out 100 candidates. Ron Howard was cast as Steve Bolander, based on a Happy Days pilot, and although the show wouldn't even air until 1974, his American graffiti character sure does have a striking similarity to little Richie Cunningham. Rounding out the central male figures, that is, the four faces of George, as it were, were Paul Lamatt as drag race enthusiast John Milner and Charles Martin Smith as Terry the Toad Fields, who can't quite get the hang of the whole buying liquor while underage scam. Also of note is the early appearance of Harrison Ford, plucked out of his carpentry day job to play fellow drag racer Bob Falfa, donning a cowboy hat 
only because Ford refused to cut his hair. This courtesy did not extend to the extras. Those that didn't want to trim their locks were promptly fired. The female cast was nearly as colorful. Mackenzie Phillips portrays Carol, who clings to Paula Matt's character for much of the movie and takes a well-earned water balloon right to the face. Being underage, the 12-year-old Phillips, daughter of Mama's and the Papa's frontman, Papa John, needed a legal guardian on the set, a position heaped on producer Kurtz. Phillips beat out future Laverne and Shirley star Cindy Williams for the role, giving Williams then the chance to play Ron Howard's girlfriend. Of note, Laverne and Shirley was a Happy Day spinoff, showcasing American Graffiti's trickling influence on the Nick at Night Fair. Rounding out some of the key players were Bo Hopkins, Candy Clark, and Suzanne Somers as Blonde and T-Bird more or less solidifying her future reputation as a lusty bimbo. There was also famed DJ Wolfman Jack, the guiding voice of the film, and a man who Lucas once planned to make a documentary of while at USC. Production on American Graffiti began in June 1972, with a tight schedule set to wrap just one month later, shooting six to 10 pages per day, nearly doubling the industry average. Since the movie takes place almost entirely at night, Production ran from 9 p.m. to just before sunrise. Shooting was supposed to take place in San Rafael, just off the San Francisco Bay, and it did for two whole days. After interfering too much with local commerce, the city council reneged on their permissions, thus leaving American Graffiti without a home. The crew had to quickly find a new locale, and they did in Petaluma, not too far from San Francisco. One may wonder why Modesto wasn't used, considering the original title was Another Quiet Night in Modesto, and Lucas based so much of the script around the town. Ironically enough, Lucas found the town had evolved a bit too much, growing out of how he envisioned it for the movie. Petaluma, however, had the magic. To add to the atmosphere and build on the nostalgia factor, Lucas sought to employ jukebox lighting to mimic the warm neon glow of a jukebox, tying in as a visual companion to the soundtrack. He hired two cinematographers to accomplish this. He also figured hiring two men for the job, as well as utilizing technoscope equipment, which used half the film stock of Cinemascope, would save some time. This was not necessarily true, since the duo didn't have the refined skills to pull off the desired visuals. Lucas ended up recruiting Haskell Wexler to lend his lighting expertise. By that point, Wexler was renowned for his counterculture masterpiece Medium Cool and winning an Oscar for Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, shot, curiously enough, in black and white. Lucas also wanted the movie to have a certain flow and so shot it partly like a documentary and allowed the cast to improvise as needed. Maybe he should have dictated that the improv was to be strictly in front of the camera. The cast of American Graffiti was made to stay on set at all times, should one character be needed in place of another and to ensure a brisk production. This gave the young cast, none of whom had seen their 30s yet, a little too much free time. During production, the cast stayed at a nearby Holiday Inn. Also housed there part of the time was a convention of dentists, four out of five of whom recommended the raucous star stop climbing the Holiday Inn sign, an act which may have contributed to Harrison Ford being kicked out of the hotel. Ford, indeed, seemed to be one of the ringleaders of the hijinks, slinging beers alongside Paul Lamatt and Bo Hopkins. Some also faced potentially life-threatening incidents. Lamatt racked up a hospital bill after a walnut allergy reaction, while Richard Dreyfus was tossed headfirst into the shallow end of the hotel pool, giving him the kind of bruise that Bill Murray probably wishes he'd delivered. Crew members didn't get off easy either. 
One was arrested for growing marijuana, while an assistant cameraman was run over by one of the set cars. George Lucas's room was even set on fire, although the perpetrator remains unclear. Our money? Ron Howard, that sinister devil. The extras in nearby motorheads also had to keep busy. Many lurched around the sets keeping an eye on their wheels, which were loaned to production for just 25 bucks a pop. The drivers themselves were paid with food. Keen viewers will note that the Ford Coupe driven by John Milner has the license plate THX138. Of note, California plates don't allow for four numbers. Now, see if you can spot a callback to an early Coppola picture. Extras in the sock hop sequence, choreographed by Tony Basil, later of Mickey fame, were urged to stick around to win raffled off radios from Ron Howard. Unfortunately for Howard, who was trying to develop his image as an actor after growing up as Opie, extras hounded him every time he came on stage, trolling him by whistling the Andy Griffith show theme. Production on American Graffiti wrapped on August 4th, 1972, with a release set for the following summer. Lucas's wife, Marcia, along with Verna Fields, who had worked with fellow movie brat Steven Spielberg on the Sugarland Express and would soon win an Oscar for Jaws, teamed up for editing duties. Their most difficult task was weaving together the multiple storylines, something rare for movies at the time. Walter Murch helped with sound. The sound, particularly the music, would be one of the most defining aspects of American Graffiti. The movie was one of the first, after 69's Easy Rider, to use pre-existing radio hits instead of relying on a new score. The hefty number of tracks resulted in the double album, 41 original hits from the soundtrack of American Graffiti, which ended up selling 3 million copies and peaked number 10 on the Billboard 200. The artists included the likes of Del Shannon, The Big Bopper, Buddy Holly, and Chuck Berry. Conspicuously absent from the soundtrack was the king himself, Elvis Presley, since Universal couldn't afford RCA's fees. But the work didn't just stop at acquiring the dozens of songs. Walter Murch completed various mixes, depending on how the song would be played. If it was heard in a car, it would sound different than if it was heard through a car. For example, 16 Candles at the Burger Joint would have been treated entirely differently than Smoke It In Your Eyes at the Sock Hop. Merch's work, as well as the sheer volume of hits included, was landmark. The music is so central to the movie that American Graffiti marked the very first time the term music supervisor was used in a motion picture. The first cut of American Graffiti came in at three and a half hours. Universal, who wanted drag races instead of a drag, deemed it unreleasable. They considered turning it into a television movie, but Lucas and Coppola both refused, with the producer offering to pay the studio the movie's budget back to gain complete control. The butting heads separated, but Universal soon stood down once the God father took home best picture that March. American Graffiti was very much a word-of-mouth release, and those mouths were loud. Since its August 1973 release, American Graffiti's all-time adjusted gross is $601 million and number 51 all-time, even ahead of Lucas's own Revenge of the Sith. Retrospective analyses see it as having a stake in the rise of the blockbuster, paving the path for box office monsters like Jaws and Star Wars. Additionally, its role in the uprising and decline of the new Hollywood era can't be understated. The film ended up being nominated for five Academy Awards, Best Picture, Best Director, Best Supporting Actress for Candy Clark, Best Story, and Best Editing, losing the majority of those to The Sting. Today, American Graffiti stands as one of the great hangout movies, serving as something of an ancestor to Days and Confused with much less fog hat and bong residue. It also helped establish or build upon the reputations of its core cast. Richard Dreyfuss would soon catch the attention of Steven Spielberg and win his only Oscar for The Goodbye Girl. Ron Howard would get his directorial break with another car-centric flick, Grand Theft Auto. 
Paula Matt and Charles Martin Smith would become reliable character actors. Cindy Williams would explode on the small screen as the latter half of Laverne and Shirley. Mackenzie Phillips made a name on TV with One Day at a Time. And of course, Harrison Ford starred in Six Days and Seven Nights. A vast majority even returned for the sequel, 1979's More American Graffiti. American Graffiti also gave George Lucas just the level of clout he so desired in Hollywood, where he could make any movie of his choosing. This newfound respect in the industry finally allowed him to properly raise awareness for his much-discussed epic space opera, Howard the Duck. Let us know your thoughts. Leave a comment in the comments, and thanks for watching.